0: And I think right now people kind of swing from exuberance, uh, whatever your side is, my side has won, or this sense of existential uh, siege and resentment. And so I I think following Jesus ought to undo both of those things.
1: Welcome to the Theology Lab podcast. I'm Scott Rice, one of the hosts. In this episode, we're joined by Reverend Russell Moore. Dr. Moore is the editor-in-chief at Christianity Today and figured large for many years in the Southern Baptist Convention, having served as the president of the SBC's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. This episode also features Reverend Dr. Walter Kim, current president of the National Association of Evangelicals. Walter helped us in organizing this series, and in this episode, he moderates the discussion with Russell. Russell Moore, as many of you will know, has a unique relationship to the evangelical movement. With his background in the SBC and his role at Christianity Today, he stands at the center of evangelicalism. But he has also been a vocal critic of authoritarian trends in evangelicalism and alliances that some evangelicals have made with the Christian nationalism movement. In this conversation, Russell speaks to how Christians might think about a nuanced relationship with politics. What does it mean for Christians to consider not only how they can achieve their desired goals, but also to maintain real integrity about the means that it takes to achieve those goals? For Christians, and this applies to politics as much as anywhere else, holy ends do not justify unholy means. Russell shares his thoughts on how Christians of different persuasions can find common ground, and he gives his take on how the current fracturing of evangelicalism might be God's way of bringing about communities and friendships that previously didn't exist. This is a fascinating conversation with someone from the heart of evangelicalism, someone who hopes for reform, and who is trying to call this movement to something new. As always, you can learn more about Theology Lab at highrockorg Lab, or email me Scott at theologylab at highrock.org.
2: Um, so, thank you, Russell, for joining this conversation.
0: Oh well, thank you, my friend. It's always good to talk to you, and uh, grateful to be here tonight.
2: Well, you know, Russell, uh, we're just going to jump right into it. Okay. <laughs> Politics, I mean that's just such a complicated thing generally, but what has become uh, now not just complicated but contentious is layered with all sorts of issues uh, in the intersection of faith, politics, and how this plays out. Um, Maybe uh, to the benefit, often to the detriment of both the politics and the faith, Uh, and you have lived in this space But before we dive into the issues, um, I think it might be helpful for folks to get a little bit of a personal uh, insight into your journey. Um, So why don't you take a a few moments to share something about your journey of faith and uh, political engagement?
0: Well, I, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in Biloxi, Mississippi. A uh, very, uh, very warm uh, community uh, taught me the Bible. Taught me to love Jesus. I think often about uh, in the uh, in the account of uh, John 10 when the crowds are coming to Jesus and they said, uh, they said about Jesus, John the Baptist did no sign, but everything he told us about this man was true. And there were there were many things that I think my home church got wrong just like, uh, just like any of us do, but what they told me about Jesus was true. And, and I've, um, and I've come to believe that uh, even stronger than before. I went through a, a spiritual crisis when I was about 15 years old. Some of it had to do with politics because it, it seemed to me that the, the Bible belt Christianity maybe was just a means to an end for politics, uh, regardless of what the politics actually were. Uh, If this was just politics with Jesus as a hood ornament on the top of it, that was deeply distressing to me. And then when you you add to it questions of racial injustice, uh, you you add to it the scandals that, uh, that I was seeing around me in Bible Belt Christianity, I started to wonder, is this is this all just made up and that and that was terrifying and thankfully i had uh, read chronicles of narnia so many times as a kid that i knew the name cs lewis and i read a mere christianity and it it wasn't the arguments there because i my problem wasn't intellectual it was the it was the fact that cs lewis was obviously in that book not trying to market me not trying to mobilize me Christianity really wasn't a means to an end. And that that helped me to get through that uh, spiritual crisis. And I was somebody who was wrestling with a call to ministry uh, really early on. Um, about 12 years old, I went to my pastor and said, I think maybe God's calling me to ministry. And he said, OK, uh, three weeks from now, you'll preach. And I said, I don't mean now. And he said, well, uh, yeah, but but I'm going to teach you how to do this which was a horrible, it it was a great experience in terms of people were very uh, affirming and and so forth. It was a terrible sermon. I know that. And I was a a nervous wreck. But I sort of grappled with that call to ministry through that spiritual crisis and beyond, um, ended up in a political direction. So I was uh, working for a United States congressman um, and um, working communications director for a congressional campaign. But the call to ministry just persisted. And so I ended up in a situation in my life where looking back, and I think most people can do this, you look back and you see all of these little what you thought were cul de sacs in your life where, where God was actually preparing you for something else. And so all of those streams just kind of fit together uh, in some way to do the sort of the sort of thing that I've been doing. Mm.
2: It, um, it's really compelling the way that God uses these personal narratives to get us to certain junctures in our lives. And you've contributed a lot uh, in this area of understanding the intersection uh, between faith and politics and the place of politics in a believer's life. But uh, as I alluded to earlier, the context in which we live in is not just complicated, it's deeply, deeply contentious and perhaps even in, uh, threatening to the very essence of faith. So a, a lot of folks, um, Christian, evangelical or not, have become disenchanted or maybe even very um, concerned about the conflation of Christian identity and politics. Um, let's, let's take a moment to pause and what do you think it looks like for Christians to engage well uh, with their own identity as followers of Jesus in, in politics?
0: Well, I think the first thing is getting priorities in order, um, which means having an understanding of the kingdom of God. My kingdom is not of this world. Uh, having a sense of oneself. I mean, one of, the, one of the problems is that there's a kind of catastrophism uh, that develops. Uh, and, and I noticed that even as a kid, uh, long before these days. But as a kid, I would notice that every four years, people would say, this is the most important presidential election of our lifetimes. And there never was a four-year period where that wasn't said. And so you would think, wouldn't there be some year where somebody would say, you know, this election's important but it's not as important as the one we had last time. That never happened. It was always uh, on the edge of uh, catastrophe and if things didn't go the way that they ought to this time then everything would be lost. And that kind of uh, catastrophic vision is really useful uh, in manipulating people, because what you can end up doing is saying, "Well, desperate times call for desperate measures," and so that means that um, that means that this uh, political uh, campaign or this political season becomes all-encompassing, uh, and the stakes are so high that that one can set aside. Uh, moral and ethical uh, obligations of being a follower of Jesus uh, because the stakes are so high. All of those things conflate. And and then you have the additional, what's what's different now, uh, one of the things is different now from what would have been the case in some years past, is that we live in an American society where politics has become so central to a person's identity. Uh, And and so you have not just kind of the sorting of people out into red state and blue state and Republicans, Democrats and so forth, but that it it becomes so close to the identity of who somebody is that when someone is challenging my political views, they're challenging, they're challenging me uh, and and they're challenging me uh, existentially. And so you end up with people who don't have a sense of, well, my political party, whatever party that is, is right on these things, but not on these things. That just almost never happens in American life right now because of of the the weighting of politics in terms of identity. Being a follower of Jesus means that those priorities are shifted. And so I see myself first as belonging to Christ. I see the kingdom of God as being um, more, infinitely more important than all of those things. And that doesn't just give me a way of looking at politics. It, it also, it recalibrates my emotional response to uh, politics, which is a key part of it right now. So I, I think often about uh, Jesus with Caesar's coin. When uh, when you have uh, when you have Jesus holding up Caesar's coin and saying whose image is on this, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, we typically look at that and say, well, Jesus is saying there are some obligations to governmental powers, but there are other obligations to God. That's true, but I think the central point of that is that you have people attempting to trap Jesus in his words. Uh, the text says. And because if Jesus said, pay the tax, then he's affirming uh, these Roman occupiers are legitimate. Uh, David's throne is legitimately uh, empty and taken over. Uh, or if he had said, don't pay the tax, well, he's an insurrectionist calling people against, uh, against Rome. Either way, what Jesus does is say, ah, whose, whose picture is on this? Okay, we'll give it back to him. There's a there's a very different emotional uh, emotional sense about those those transient realities. It's able to reprioritize them, and I think right now people kind of swing from exuberance, uh, whatever your side is. My side has won, and we're we're definitive, We've definitively won, or this sense of existential uh, siege and resentment. My side has lost, and we're, uh, we're we're we've permanently lost, and we're we're a besieged uh, sort of group. And so, I think I think following Jesus undoes or ought to undo both of those things.
2: Uh, Russell, I want to um, synthesize, and in, in order to push a, 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 a particular set of questions now. So, um, I think you did a really good job characterizing some. What I might summarize is the politics of fear, you know, the the way that fear is used to manipulate, as you describe um, the emotions and then uh, this existential replacement of maybe faith and other times or uh, the racial, or ethnic identity with political identity as kind of the central thing. But this whole notion of totalizing fear and uh, identity in my mind. I understand why it would totalize your views. In other words, the inability to say, well, you have this point and I can give that to you. And in fact, you actually might be better uh, suited in in understanding this. Um, Why this all or nothing? Can you draw that out a little bit more? Um, Because this seems to be the essence of a problem of um, democracy. If we cannot concede points to one another or find ways
0: of compromising, It's not just about democracy, but this is like the history of the church, too. Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. Uh, One of them, I remember being uh, very young and green in ministry and going with a pastor that I really respected to a Baptist associational meeting uh, in our denomination. And there was a guy who kept getting up at the microphone and just wanting to fight about every little thing. And I'm just sitting there saying, what is his problem? And my pastor said, this is somebody, he's, I know this guy, he's, he's a bivocational pastor. He works in a job where he's bossed around and belittled all the time. He serves in a church where the people just, just uh, boss him around and, and intimidate him. And this is the one place behind that microphone where he feels like he is somebody and he has a voice. And so it just comes out in anger. He said, you have that. And then you have uh, some other people for whom it's just boredom. And so that that craving for controversy comes out of that, that sense of, of boredom. I think we can see that all over the place uh, in American life right now. That's, that's one part of it. I think the other part of it is uh, Amanda Ripley has a really important book called High Conflict where uh, she talks about conflict in any space, whether it's in a, a school board, a city council, or uh, if it's in, uh, in a church, or if it's in a national sort of political moment. And she says, one of the things you have to be looking for are the conflict entrepreneurs. So these are the people for whom there's an interest in, um, in having people think of themselves as either superior or uh, threatened and, and besieged uh, and to, to motivate that. And so I think we see a lot of conflict entrepreneurs uh, in American life. And then you add to that uh, the effect of social media, and not just in terms of, of the quarrelsomeness that can happen on social media, although that's a part of it. It's it's the fact that once somebody has publicly committed to something, uh, it becomes really difficult to be persuaded of anything else, um, as opposed to... I mean, the way that we all change our minds on things. We think about the things we've changed our minds on. Almost none of us changed our minds because at the end of a 20-minute argument, we said, you're right, I'm wrong, I surrender. Um, We don't do that. Usually what happens is you think about uh, what it is that the other person has said. You try to imagine what it would be like to, to be a person who holds that position. Uh, And then you just wrestle through it and it happens over a a, a long considered kind of process. Maybe there's a crisis that happens in your life and you reconsider something before. That's how people change. When you're in this sort of ecosystem where there's a lack of possibility even of attention and persuasion and then you have a loss of, of anything transcendent in people's lives. And then you end up with something's going to something's going to fill that void. And this kind of it's not even fair to call it politics because it's not really politics. It's not um, sort of working together to find out solutions for the civic space. It's uh, it's a sense of this is who I am. And so this is this is my tribe. we're good, you're bad. you must be destroyed. And that's why you end up with, I mean, one of the things that really uh, worries me is the dehumanizing language that ends up in uh, in, in the political space uh, right now. Uh, anytime that you in any history of the world, when you see human beings start to be referred to, As animals, as insects, as a a, a plague, or in a Christian context where you have spiritual warfare uh, language being used for political uh, warfare. Well, think about what that does. I mean, spiritual warfare is wrestling not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Uh, And so when I say this conflict is spiritual warfare, And what I mean by that is you are spiritually warring against me. What am I doing? I'm suggesting that you're a demon, uh, which means you're not redeemable and you're not persuadable. And and, and I'm not persuadable uh, toward your position at all, which means that the stakes go way up, even in issues where the stakes are not that high. And that, I think, is is a key part of it right now, especially within the church
2: demonization, uh, invoking the spiritual forces. Uh, this is kind of central to what is unfolding with this notion of nationalism. Um, so let's let's shift to this topic that is so incredibly um, difficult, but it appears to me um, really critical to address because the implications are quite profound, again, not only for our politics, but also for our faith. Um, so what are, what are some of the factors um, that have given rise to this notion of Christian nationalism? Maybe you can even help us to understand how you would define Christian nationalism.
0: Uh, I would define Christian nationalism as the use of uh, Christian uh, symbols, identity, terminology as a means to an ethnic or, or national end. And that's something that we've seen uh, that has happened from time immemorial because you have always had uh, earthly rulers or aspiring earthly rulers who want to use religion uh, as a way to give themselves unquestionable authority uh, or to give mobs of people a sense of unquestionable identity. So you, you can look at the way Pharaoh, for instance, would want to uh, see himself as uh, divine, as, as in touch with the Egyptian gods to use that. Nebuchadnezzar is, uh, is using that in Babylon. Caesar is doing that, uh, proclaiming himself to be a son uh, of the gods and, and using the Roman pantheon for, for Caesar worship. I mean, it just goes on and on and on where people want to use... Uh, transcendent claims to, to make the stakes higher for whatever uh, it is that they want to do. And so if you're looking at Christian nationalism, uh, there are several uh, issues with it. I mean, Christ, Christian nationalism uh, is a threat to democracy. Yes, uh, th- th- there's a reason why the American constitutional uh, order is what it is. But that's not the worst part about it. Christian nationalism is a prosperity gospel for nations or ethnic groups uh, rather than for for individuals. And it is just as dangerous, if not more so, than those prosperity gospels because it's essentially a fertility religion. It's, It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. What the gospel of Jesus Christ says is that there is one God and one mediator between God and the human being, the man, Christ Jesus. And that unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What Christian nationalism does is to assume that people come before God group by group and that external conformity uh, is, is what Christianity is about. Jesus explicitly says that is not the case, that you you must be born again. And so the biggest problem that I have with Christian nationalism is that it's something other than uh, the blood of Christ and the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And so I'm very concerned, not only that Christian nationalism will lead people to um a, a situation in which we don't have a functioning democracy i'm worried about that but i'm i'm more worried about the fact that i really believe in hell <laughs> well, w- which means that external conformity isn't uh isn't enough uh and, and as a matter of fact external conformity when it's posed as the gospel is even worse uh than outright paganism because what it's doing is saying to you uh, you, you're fine because you're one of us as though it's coming from Jesus Christ. That's, that's not what the gospel of Jesus Christ is.
2: Then what is a principled approach to politics? Because we wouldn't wish to say as a follower of Jesus, um, you know, because we don't want to be um, complicit with this kind of Christian nationalism that we need to keep our faith out of the public square mm-hmm. clearly you don't believe that given your work at the yeah. ethics and religious liberties commission and nor do i given my work at the nae so give us some um, principles to work with that help guide what what are some ways in which we actually should have our faith inform our engagement in the public square
0: well a, a person's conscience is going to be shaped and formed by um what it is that they love and what it is that they cling to and and the uh the beliefs that they have the habits that they practice all of those things and so a person ought to come into the civic space uh with a a conscience that's shaped and formed and that means for a christian to come into the civic space um with a a conscience that understands Here's how I am to. Uh, the, here's how I am to act justly as a citizen. Uh, now, what we what we can't do is to take Simon Peter's sword uh, when Jesus is being arrested and and use and wield that as the church or as uh, Christianity. But we we come into the public square as, as people who are shaped and formed in conscience, uh, morally. So we're we're searching for justice, and we're we're seeking to uh, we're seeking to relate to one another justly. So think about it uh, when you think about engagement in the civic space. Think about it the same way you do your job. Um, if you are rightly working and serving in your job, you're not seeking to have your your job turned over to your church to do the uh, planning for lawn maintenance or hedge fund management or whatever it is that you do. But the faith that you have shapes the way that you approach those things. And I'm not going to defraud someone. I'm not going to uh, act in an unjust uh, way. That applies also to your life as a as a citizen. You're you're seeking to do what is right as a follower of Jesus Christ. So it's it's really similar to uh, what's happening. Think about it. it's a very different system from the system that we're in right now. But think of when John the Baptist is preaching on the banks of the Jordan, and you have tax collectors and soldiers uh, coming to him and saying, "Okay, we repent. We believe." what do we do now? And what John does is not to give a a military policy or an economic policy. Instead, he says, don't defraud people, don't uh, intimidate people, don't use uh, force uh, for for your own gain against people. There's a conscience that, that ought to be able to stand before God Or acting justly. And there are going to be some things, just like in your personal moral life, there are going to be some things where uh, justice is really clearly defined. Uh, There are going to be other things where the the question of what do I do about this issue isn't clearly defined, but the principles behind it are. And we may have arguments of how how prudentially to, to get there. And then there are going to be other things where we we leave it to one another's consciences because we don't have a, a clear word on those things. Same thing applies uh, when it comes to these decisions that we make uh, as as people together.
2: Yeah, I, that Russell, that's really helpful. I, I often think about that in, in my own work when I uh, enter into these spheres of uh, public engagement, civic engagement, whether it's in the political realm or just more broadly that uh, we should have absolute clarity about the person of Jesus, uh, and then clarity and commitment to um, our own persons as people who are ethical in our behavior, and what you're describing, no matter what field you're in. Um, I I would push further and and say we should have clarity about the moral principles and theological principles that guide us, but then when you move to policy, um, the, the application is so varied, right? I mean, put it in the context of a church. You know, you may have one very clear sermon, but the application for person to person will vary quite differently. Um, and so you're you're really challenging us to think about uh, clarity with respect to the person of Jesus, with respect to our own ethical personhood, um, clarity about the moral principles, um, but increasing complexity and graciousness with respect to policy. How do you well, actually apply it? In policy form, much less the politics of it, which is, I would even distinguish that. You know, you have policy, but then you have, well, how does that end up in the vote? And then the political discourse of compromise. And so this is really
0: helpful. I would just, I would just, uh, I would just add it, it can have uh, complex applications. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, if you're if your neighborhood association says what we're going to do is to burn old ladies at the stake. And so uh, anybody who turns 80, we're going to bring out here to the to the town square and, and burn burn that person at the stake, you're going to say uh, no. this is this is a, a clear, very clear application that we're that we're uh, bringing to the, the to the table here. Then there're going to be other things, where what's going on is what's important is not necessarily the end result, but how you get there. So you may have two Christians, both of whom are really motivated by James 127, care for widows and orphans in their distress. They're both on the city council. One of them says, we need to raise the minimum wage to be able to to help single mothers in our community be able to care for their children. Uh, The other Christian says, I'm worried that if we raise the minimum wage in our town right now with the economic situation we're in, that the businesses will cut their hours and single moms won't be able to uh, take care of their children. Well, what do you have? You have people who are shaped by the exact same biblical principles and and biblical conscience. They're having an argument about how best to get there. I'm not going to even interfere in that argument. Now, if a third person comes up and says, Who cares about the single mothers? They should be, uh, if they were married and living the way that they ought to be, uh, then they wouldn't be in poverty in the first place. Let's not worry about the losers and the takers. Let's worry about the producers. That's somebody I'm going to rebuke. They say the the, the Bible speaks really clearly about the way that we're to care for the poor, and that's not it. So sometimes it's at that level of, you may have completely different uh, understandings of what the end result is, but you're getting there the same way. And there, there are some issues where I would say, um, and this would be true with theological issues as well as social and political issues. uh, You can get to the right uh, place in the wrong way. And that's a really, really dangerous thing. What, what uh, the Bible speaks about is not just the ends; it's the ways that we get there, and and we have to have both.
2: Um, I want to pick up on one thread of what you've said that sometimes there are things that are they're just wrong. Like, you, know, you, you know, bringing out an eighty year old's um, grandmother to you know to harm them—I mean, that's just wrong. Um, and America has a history in which some things have been done literally like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, with respect to race. There are there are moments where things have been wronged. And this is a segue into the notion, not simply ab- about race, um, but about the changing face of evangelicalism and the way that it has often been talked about as predominantly um, a, a white phenomena, which by and large, in many ways it has been it, with respect to its leadership. And yet we're in this moment of um, reshuffling, of, of, of wondering, what is evangelicalism right now uh, as it is growing in its ethnic racial diversity, or at least having to deal with the racial history of our country and the racial diversity, ethnic diversity uh, of um, America right now. Um, So can you speak to this? I mean, it is both a a comment, a question about the disarray that you have sometimes talked about uh, evangelicalism being in, but also about the potential for realignments um, and revitalization of evangelicalism.
0: Well, le- let me take that in two parts. Take the the race part first. Um, the very thing that has to do with the very thing that we were just talking about. I mean, uh, notice what has happened in American history. Not just the persecution uh, of uh, people under uh, white supremacist uh, premises uh, through human slavery, through Jim Crow in, in other ways, but also the way that when those things were done, there were always people who were wanting to cloak them in Christian terms, and so uh, slavery uh, has to exist because it is Christian in this uh, perspective. Jim Crow is is right. A person would say because, and there would be all of these misuses of of scripture to prop those things up. So you have this uh, not just injustice against human beings created in the image of God, which would be bad enough. You add to that the taking of the name of the Lord our God in vain. In, in propping up unjust and, and evil things. Those, those things have gone together. Now, when you talk about Christian nationalism, what you will notice is that if in almost every case, if you peel just a little bit with Christian nationalism, what you're going to see is race. You're going to find uh, claims to racial superiority, um, in some way or the other. That's that's why these Christian nationalist movements that you have uh, emerging all over the world are, are coming out of the same old blood and soil, um, national and ethnic solidarity, who are the outsiders, and we define the outsiders ethnically or, or nationally or racially, uh, which is just not consistent at all with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those things are connected. Now, when you turn that over and you say, okay, what's going on in evangelicalism? I would say, first of all, there really is no such thing as evangelicalism. And, and what I mean by that is evangelicalism is a, is, a, is a descriptor where we're trying to categorize a certain group of people, and it's imprecise. Um, and so it's, it's, it's not a clearly identifiable thing. Uh, now I don't want to give up the word. And I I think there are reasons to, to keep the word and to keep the description. And I don't think there's, uh, I don't think there's a better alternative to it, but it's not, uh, it's not a clearly identified thing. So what has happened now, uh, is that you have this shakeup. Uh, happening within evangelical Christianity. At the same time, there's a shakeup taking place in almost every institution uh, right now. The, the stability uh, structures are are gone. I mean, I, I don't know a church that's not either tense and divided or aware that they're not, and kind of on guard because they're they're just waiting for that to happen. I don't know a family where you don't have people who are at odds with each other or not not speaking to one another in some way or, or the other. I mean, all of those institutions are coming under uh, under stress, and they're being they're being shaken up. What I think we're seeing right now within evangelical Christianity is that. We had these uh, coalitions and alliances and tribes that seemed really stable and really permanent. And over the events of the last uh, the last decade, uh, whether we're talking about race, whether we're talking about Christian nationalism, uh, uh, political idolatries of various kinds, whether we're talking about uh, church sexual abuse, or cover-up of scandals. I mean, there, there are many issues uh, involved here. You have a lot of those old coalitions and alliances where people are saying, we thought that we were, uh, that we were together, but we're really not, because it, it turns out that we were, we were talking about something completely different uh, all along. That leads to a lot of disorientation, uh, and and it leads to a lot of uh disillusionment and uh and frustration and instability and fear but notice what god is doing in the middle of that it's it's not just that some of those things are being torn down it's that you have new uh coalitions and relationships and and friendships that are being formed out of it So you just look through the the storyline of scripture, what God is always doing is pulling a a community apart in order to form a new community. And that always brings with it a, a great deal of disequilibrium. And I think that's what's happening right now. So I think you have a lot of people who are kind of looking across their tribes and saying, maybe we don't completely agree on a a list of things but we actually have a lot in common and we are uh we're seeking the same goal in, in serving the kingdom and we can live with some of those differences on those secondary things and there are a lot of people who are finding uh I actually, how did I, how did I make it this far without knowing about these, these people in my life, uh, followers of Jesus Christ that, that I just discounted before, because I thought, well, they're, they're somebody else. They're, they're in some other tribe. I think that's being shaken up in ways that are, that could lead to some really exciting uh, fruit in the years to come.
2: Thank you, Russell. Um, I uh, gather we have a number of questions that have been generated by your comments. And so I wanna turn things over uh, to Scott.
1: Russell, thank you so much. I'm gonna say at the beginning, this is not a gotcha question, okay? But it's gonna get into living uh, with differences and how to try to do that best, as best as possible. <clears throat> so you've written on some of your uh, complementarian positions around, around gender, um a church that's coming out of a tradition that uh, is egalitarian. How do you think evangelical christians who hold these views can try to best understand each other evangel egalitarians complementarians and vice versa right and here we're talking about gender but i think evangelicals and christians are going to be talking about these issues with human sexuality so it applies to just a lot of areas
0: well i think if you if you look at um part of the problem is i mean even in the way that we're we're discussing the issue right now is in terms of Complementarianism and egalitarianism, as though these are two um, self-cohesive and competing parties, because that's the way that it existed uh, for so long in in American evangelical Christianity. You're either one or the other, and if you're if you're a complementarian, then complementarians are your people, and if you're an egalitarian, egalitarians are your people. But that's not really the case because what you end up finding is there are a lot of egalitarian evangelicals who would say, you know, um, I firmly believe that God's uh, gifts and callings are given uh, regardless of gender. And I think that Galatians 3.28 and other passages mean that uh, there is a, uh, there's an equality in those, in those callings. But... I don't have a lot in common with people who would say "Father, Son, Holy Spirit" is is uh, bad patriarchal language. That's not who I am. You have people in sort of my uh, background, complementarianism, who have uh, who have realized, wait a minute, some of the people that we thought were um, were trying to do faithful exegesis of First Timothy two or to maintain the Catholicity of the the church's teaching over 2,000 years really were misogynist and uh, really were uh, setting up systems where there's a constant narrowing of, uh, of, of these questions. And everything starts to be seen in terms of the grid of gender and has rendered some really awful fruit With sort of cults of masculinity and the way that these arguments have been used in covering up sexual abuse, all of those things. So what's happening is I think that you've seen a lot of people where you have somebody who might say, I I think that there are some differences in calling between men and women, but mostly the Bible speaking to us as persons, followers of Jesus Christ. And I actually have more in common with a person uh, with this egalitarian uh, person who might disagree with me on some of those things, but agrees with me uh, on the dignity of of women and the value of women and a lot of egalitarians who are saying um, this this. Particular complementarian and I might differ on exactly what the audience is intended in First Timothy two, but we're on the same page as to how we're getting there, and so those alliances being formed. And one of the things that happens, I mean, if you if you look at this, um, baptism and the Lord's Supper are talked about a lot more in the new testament than these questions and yet we're able to coexist with one another uh so that uh, a a baptist uh might well think a presbyterian or a methodist is not baptized uh we're still able to we're still able to say okay we have a difference here exegetically but we're able to, to work together in all of these ways. I think the same thing uh, same thing applies here. And I think there are there are that the danger is for both complementarians and egalitarians. I've seen it more with complementarians, but that's probably just because of the world I've lived in. Danger is a slippery slope uh, argument because uh, there are slippery slopes but there are slippery slopes on every side of every uh, issue. And so if you only see the slippery slope on the other side, that usually means you're sliding down the slope on the other. And so I, I think when those things get put aside and people come in and say, okay, let's let's value one another and honestly talk about where we disagree, you'll see some people who, who change their minds on things. Uh, but even when you don't, you'll have people who say, we're in the same, we're in the same fight here. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's to the good. Let me,
1: let me go to a question here. Um, these are a little bit on uh, politics, uh, Christian nationalism. I'm going to put together a few questions here. So I'll just have a couple of angles. Um, do you see evangelicalism, evangelical theology, creating a tendency towards authoritarianism? What's it look like to combat that? Um, let me add on another question, and you can kind of approach it as you'd like. Uh, is Christian nationalism uh, something that's unique to the U.S.? Are we seeing it in other places? How should Christians respond to that?
0: It, it definitely is happening globally, uh, and and if you look at, uh, there's a there's a really helpful book by Matthew Rose called I think it's um, Enemies of Liberalism, uh, with with liberalism meaning liberal democracy. Um, that, that's looking at, uh, at these movements across the world. Uh, Tobias Kramer uh, has, has written quite a bit about this too, because what, what you can see are these movements, especially in Europe, where uh, there will be leaders who are, in many cases, atheists and agnostics, but are, are mobilizing people behind Christian symbols and Christian identity, because what they mean by Christianity is our civilization whoever our is so when we say we're christian what we mean is we're german or we're french or we're dutch it means we're not muslim or we're not whatever it is the the category is to be uh to be defined as the the outsider so that is co- that is definitely happening it's happening in italy it's happening in germany it's happening in france it's happening uh all over uh, the the place around the world. Um, And then when it comes to this question of authoritarianism, uh, I think the reason that we're seeing a rise in authoritarianism is for the same reason we always do, which is a decline in authority or a a vacuum of authority. And what I mean by authority is there's a sociologist, uh, Robert Nisbet, who used to argue when authority, Authority is eroded. What takes its place is uh, is power. So with with authority, what you have is personal uh, or institutional credibility. Uh, you, you we we trust one another, and uh, and out of that there is a sense of credibility, uh, as opposed to. I can overpower you, and I can coerce you. So when Jesus teaches with authority and not as one of the scribes, it's not because Jesus is saying "Listen to me," or "I'm going to steamroll you." It's because he has the credibility to to know what he's talking about and and to speak with that kind of uh, that kind of credibility. So when that starts to be uh, broken down you end up with authoritarianism. And that's the reason why you have people who are longing for authoritarian political leaders, often in terms of uh, cruelty, so that there's kind of a vicarious infliction of cruelty and revenge upon my enemies, whoever my enemies are defined to be uh, in an authoritarian political space or in a church space there's an authoritarianism in which a, uh, a pastor or a group of pastors or a leader will manipulate uh, people through intimidation and power. Um, I was just telling a group of people this morning that uh, there are all sorts of ways to realize that you're in a, an authoritarian context. One of them is in my experience, uh, almost, al- almost completely uh, verifiable. And that is when someone uses texts such as touch not mine anointed to refer to the leader, uh, then y- you are almost always in an authoritarian, if not a cult-like uh, situation. And because that's, that's, using, that's using power, not using credibility. And so I think that, that once credibility is gone, the authoritarianism goes way, way up. All right, Dr.
1: Moore, I want to see if I can pose to you three, I want to pose a game here, three, say three to four questions. You get 15 seconds to reply. You can say pass on any of them because if it's just not fair to you to answer it in 15 seconds, then uh, then, then we, we respect that. Does this sound okay to you? Okay. All right. Uh, 15 second answer on... Uh, does do politics now function as religious faith?
0: Yes, it it's filling the void of of uh, transcendence or or attempting to in people's lives. It just it just it does it can't do that. It, it disappoints. We
1: ha- we have a viewer who is very impressed by your hair and wants to know what kind of product you use.
0: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, whatever is down there, I don't know.
1: Okay finally um, stanley hauserwarth says uh, first task of the church is to exhibit in our common life together kind of community that's possible when trust and not fear rules our lives mm-hmm. um how is a church to form its members this way how can it do it even amongst disagreement
0: well i think i think by finding finding those communities that have their priorities in order and that are not driven by uh, driven by status uh, because a great deal of that comes to that selfish ambition rivalry kind of a, a social Darwinist view of seeing what the what the church is when you find those communities of people who really do know how to hold one another accountable uh, how to exhibit repentance um, those sorts of things I think that A tearing down a sort of the public relations model where what we want to we want to give to the world is we're we're the church, we have everything together uh, as opposed to a reconciliation model. And I, I think the latter is the way to go.
1: Russell, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to the Theology Lab podcast. Find out what's happening at the moment with Theology Lab at highrock.org theologylab Theology Lab.